0: Today we come to a passage of scripture found in Mark chapter 14 and it's about communion and we're going to take communion today. We're going to pray for the people in uh, the flood ravaged areas of our country and uh, we're going to expect God to do something. But before we start that I want to tell you a story about a guy named Bill Fuqua. Now, he's, in the record books, his name is William Fuqua. Four times in the 70s and 80s, he held the Guinness World Record for motionlessness. He was a mannequin for over six hours. Now, that record has since been broken. There's a person in India that has a record for over 30 hours of complete motionlessness and complete emotionlessness. No look on the face, no smile, no nothing, just complete motionlessness. Now, this guy, Bill, uh, used to go to state fairs and go to malls and amusement parks, and he would put a sign beside himself, and it said, Uh, motionless man. If you can make him smile, you win a hundred bucks. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I like a good challenge and I think that I could win this one, Uh, but nobody ever did. And so why do I think I'm better than they, but they could never make him crack a smile. They could never make him move. They could never get him off his game. And at time after time, people would try and try you know, make the weirdest face you can make. Wow. It looks alarmingly like your normal face. I don't know. You didn't make a good attempt there, I don't think. Now, but people would do that. they you know, they eh, do this and you know do stuff. And, and I don't know all the stuff that was done, but I'm sure that there was some pretty hilarious stuff. Never cracked a smile. Motionless and emotionless. Now I tell you that story today because I believe that that is not the way God created us. He didn't create us to be emotionless nor emotionless, especially in our relationship with him. God did not intend that whatsoever. So we come to this phase in Jesus' life where he's nearing his death. And he gets up to this point and he has a plan. Now, it's not very common belief that among the the disciples that he had a plan at all. And we're going to discover that today as we read through the passage of Scripture. But he knew some things. Jesus knew some things prior to his death. And here are three things that he knew. First of all, he knew when and how he was going to die. He knew how he was going to die. He knew when he was going to die. He knew some stuff. Now, you can imagine prior to his actual death that that would weigh heavy on him. One of the worst things in the world, I think, is to know when you're going to die. You know, we'd all like to think, well, I wonder when I'm going to die. And that way I could get all of my living in done before that. And I could be. But I really think that it would cast a great pall on your life. And it would cause you to have some great fear, anxiety, and great reticence to go out in public, maybe. And probably you would withdraw a lot. And so Jesus has this knowledge. Also, he knew that he was going to bear the weight of sin of the world. Now, I don't know if you have a lot of oomph to take on your own baloney. Uh, but he was going to take on not only the, the baloney of his disciples, but he was going to take on the baloney of the entire world. All of the things that had been done wrong was going to be heaped on his shoulders, and he was going to pay the penalty for all the wrong that had been done. He also knew one other thing. He was going to—he knew that he was going to experience separation from the Father okay, at his death. Now, I often think about that time in the Garden of Gethsemane there where he's praying, you know, and, and he's really grieving, and he's saying... Uh, he tells his father, you know, if there be any other way for me to experience this, I would be great with that. I'd be really fine with that. But if not, your will be done, not mine. I think that when he was praying that prayer, it wasn't the physical pain that he was ex- thinking about the experience of. He was thinking about the separation from his father. And sometimes we think, you know, I could have gone three days, you know, because that's really all he experienced. Three days of separation from his father before he was risen again. But I often think that if we knew how wonderful it is to be with God, that we would grieve over the loss of a second. And Jesus grieved that loss. So he knew some things about that. Now, in spite of this great pressure that he had upon him, he does something loving for his disciples. He does something loving. He cares about the people that he's going to leave behind. So let's pick up the passage here in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 uh, through 26. And I'll just read it to you. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went out into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, Jesus makes a couple of assertions here about communion. And like I said, we're going to celebrate communion today. So I want you to take these assertions to heart. The first one is prepare intentionally for communion prepare intentionally. We see in Jesus' life here, you know, uh, we see him, he's got some specific plans that he has made. He knows where the man's going to be. He knows the house that the man's going to go to. He sends his disciples to make preparations for him there. Now, behavioral scientists have discovered that we usually see things that we are prepared to see. Now, here's the name of that. It's called reticular activating system. And if you expect to see something you will find it. Now, how many of you have ever bought a car? Okay, How many of you thought that you had the only car like that on the road when you bought it? However, after you bought it, you saw them everywhere. That's the reticular activating system at work in your life. It happens all the time to us. And it's we see stuff virtually everywhere we go because we're expecting to see that thing. Now, it Bears out in people as well. When you expect to see something in people, you'll find it, you know, and then you'll see it in other people around you as well. And you might be. And now this can be for your good or it can be for your bad. Okay? You can see good in things and you expect to see good and you'll find good. If you expect to see bad and expect to, to be hurt and disappointed, you'll find that as well. So my point is, is that we need to have perspective when it comes to celebrating communion. Worship and communion are a lot like that. The reticular activating system is at work. Now, here's the sad thing about church. Church is routine. Okay, I see some people go, mm. I see some people go, mm. and I say, oh, dear, I need to make some changes. But sometimes we come expecting to see the same old, same old, don't we? And so we don't If we're not looking to see God at work, we don't see God at work. Or we think that he's just at work and, you know, God bless all of his children who follow him and blah, blah, blah. And wasn't it wonderful to be in church today? Uh Uh-huh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm so happy to be here. You know, and so it's kind of the routine and we expect the routine, but we never see God at work like we would really like to see him at work. So what I want us to do is change our expectations. What do we expect God to do and how can we see that happen? Now, let's take a look at Jesus again. It could have been exasperating for Jesus in this situation. How many Passovers do you think the disciples had already celebrated? Let's say they're 30 years old. They'd celebrated 30 of them. And they come and they ask Jesus, who's facing all of this stuff that he knows is going to happen to him, his death, his, all the stuff, the punishment, all the things that are going to happen to him, is weighing heavy on him. And they come and say, hey, what do you want us to do for Passover what should you, what do you want us to do huh huh don't you think for a minute the disciples could have taken care of that you know if i'm jesus i i i you know i'm just kind of that kind of guy that says can you handle that can you just take care of that one little thing for us it's not a big deal you know how it's done you know what to do you got it in your hands just go do it but no jesus doesn't do that you know it wasn't the first passover for his disciples and you know i'm kind of like the guy you know, you, you know, and I think the disciples are kind of like the guy that's getting his wife in the car. She's going to have a baby. And so she he grabs all this stuff, throws it in the car, gets her in the car. And they're driving down the road. And He looks over at her and he says, hey, did you make arrangements for somebody to cut the grass while you're gone? <laughs> I can only imagine that car, you know, and I can only imagine, you know, what it was like for the disciples when they say, hey, you want us to make, you know, what do you want us to do for 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 Passover. what We got nothing. Remember when the disciples were, were feeding, or when there were, Jesus was teaching the multitudes, 4,000 one time, 5,000 another time, and the, he's, the disciples come and say, hey, these people are going to get hungry. We need to send them away. And Jesus says, no, no, we can't do that. And they say, oh, we don't have anything to give them. You know, think about the money it would cost to feed them. And Jesus says, ah, see what we have, see what we have, and let's see what we can do with it. And that's the way I think that we as believers ought to approach life. What do we have in our hand that God could use to make something incredible happen? That wasn't the mindset of the disciples, even to the last days that Jesus was with them. They were leaning on him and saying, hey, what do you want us to do? How should we make uh, preparations for Passover? Now, Jesus answers their question because he already had a plan prepared. You know, I just said, hey, you guys just go handle it. But Jesus already had a plan. Now, notice what he says. He says, you're going to go into town, you're going to find a man carrying a water jar. Now, how many men do you think were in town carrying a water jar? Not many. In fact, that was a woman's job. So to see a man carrying a water jug was kind of uncommon. So when they saw one, they would have some confirmation, this is a guy. This is the guy. We're going to follow him and we're going to talk to the owner of that house. He says, find a man carrying water. And he says, there's a large, in this house, there's a large room upstairs and it's already prepared. It's already ready. So, man, all we got to do is go bring our arrangements, take, take care of stuff and for our own personal care. And we're going to be there. That's, that's already taken care of. And guess what? They found everything just as Jesus had told them it would happen. You know? Wouldn't you like to be part of something like that? You know, God tells you something and you see it and you go, that's just like God planned it. Well, sometimes I think that God does that for us, but we don't see it because we don't plan for it. Yeah, we don't see it because we're not looking for it because we didn't think anything like that would ever happen. So I want us to change the way we, we think. And here's three things I want us to change. Number one, I want us to expect something. When we come to worship, when we come to communion, let's expect something from God. Let's not expect the same old, same old, okay? Let's expect something from God, for God to reveal himself to us, for God to show off a little bit, for God to really uh, draw attention to himself, and he's going to use us to do that. Second thing is be patient. Be patient because sometimes we have some lofty goals, maybe we have some lofty expectations and they don't get fulfilled. What happens when that happens? Oh, we get disappointed, don't we? In fact, disappointment is made out of unfulfilled expectations. So if something you are expecting doesn't happen, we get disappointed. So be patient. God in his time will always show up. The third thing is I want us to avoid empty ritual. I want us to, when we come to communion, not to just expect the same old, same old. I don't want us just to do it out of routine. Okay, we do this. And, you know, in fact, I can tell when we rely on routine. If I do this when we are taking communion and I do this, you all do this. Because that's what you expect. If I do this and hold it and I say, okay, and I say the, 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 the words that many times are said. And then I say, but now let's take a look at, most people are going to be doing this because that's our routine. I want us to avoid empty ritual. Um, St. Patrick, uh, when he was around in the fifth century, uh, he was baptizing a king. And as he was baptizing a king, the king had this really sharp pointed staff that, uh, that was with him. And inadvertently, while, while he was being baptized, St. Patrick leaned on that staff. And the staff was really on his boot and the point part of his boot. And it pierced his boot, pierced his foot, And blood went everywhere. But, you know, St. Patrick, he's baptizing this guy. He doesn't even notice this is going on. So as they get done, you know, he concludes the baptism. St. Patrick steps back and sees this pool of blood. And he goes, why why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say something to me? And here's what the king said. The king said, I thought it was part of the ritual. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We get so caught up in the ritual that we forget the significance and the meaning of what we're celebrating. Now, um, I'm not so sure that we often make a lot of advanced preparation for worship. I can imagine these kinds of conversations going on before we reach church. Why was my breakfast burned? Okay. Why was my breakfast? where was my breakfast? Or... What was my breakfast? You know, we have all those kinds of things going. Uh, and, and here's another one. Are you going to be there all day? You know, how many of you think church goes too long? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Another thing, getting ready to go out to the car. Where's my Bible? I haven't seen it since last Sunday. Ouch. Okay. Okay. Here, here's dad. I'm going to start the car. If you're not out there in two minutes, I'm going to leave without you. And I'm telling everyone that you're the reason I'm late every week. Mom responds with this. George, if you would help with the kids instead of barking orders, we might be ready. Get everybody in the car, kids in the back seat, bickering like crazy. Mom says, let's at least smile when we drive in the parking lot. And as we smile and drive in the parking lot, there's another family that just got out of their car. They're all holding hands. They're moving up to the church. And, oh, couldn't we be a family just like that? Probably is that you are a family just like that. They just got done putting their smiles on. Okay. So sometimes I think that we don't really make advanced preparations for when we come to worship, when we come to have communion. So here's some preparation suggestions I have for you. Begin the night before. Don't begin Sunday preparing for worship. In fact, if you started Sunday, that might be an advance preparation for many of us. But begin the night before, because I think a lot of things that happen in church or don't happen in church are because of the things that happened Saturday night the night before. Kept us up too late, kept us involved in some stuff we shouldn't have been involved. Whatever it is, prepare the night before. Begin doing that. Then as you get up on Sunday morning, listen to Christian music. Just change the atmosphere in your home. Listen to some worship music as you get ready to come to church. Listen to it on your way to church, and maybe the kids won't bicker in the back seat. Okay? Read the Bible before you come to church. Read it devotionally. Read a little devotion, Just to take a, yeah, take a minute and, and say, let's see what Jesus did in this passage here. Let's just take a look. Okay? Fourth thing, arrive early. Get here early so that you can kind of settle in, get a cup of coffee, have a donut or two or three, and just settle in and say uh, greet your fellow worshipers and, and just have a, a, a good time. I, I went to my sister's church in uh, Phoenix, and they have a large church and they have five services on Sundays, and and, and you know that that's pretty cool, uh, but and that's not the goal of the church. But the thing that struck me was that when I was leaving, there were people already lined up. They had them lined up in this big area. You had to leave and go out the sides. And in the middle of their large foyer, there were, it was all roped off. And there were probably two, three, four hundred people waiting to get in. And I thought, these people came early. These people came early and they're ready to hear God say something. And sometimes that helps us uh, when we arrive early, when we expect God to do something. And we get there and, uh, and we're excited about what's going on. Jesus makes another assertion here a little later on, and he says, really, prepare personally for communion, okay? Prepare personally for communion. Now, under the stress of the times that he he was experiencing, uh, what do you think Jesus wanted around him at the time? He wanted some loyal friends, some loyal friends. Who was he surrounded with? Would you call them loyal friends? They had their ups and they had their downs. Uh, in John thirteen twenty one, and we don't have this on the, on the outline, uh, but after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Judas. I mean, that guy was a good actor, don't you think? Now, Jesus is getting ready. He sits down with his disciples in this upper room. And just out of, the, you know, the first conversation we have recorded in this is not, hey, guys, it was great to see you, blah, blah, blah. No small talk. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth at the dinner that we have recorded is one of you guys is going to betray me. Now, you can imagine that that would shock and alarm most of the guys there. In fact, it should shock and alarm 11 of them. Shouldn't shock one of them, should it? Well, it might shock him because he's found out. But, you know, you see Michelangelo's, oh, I'm sorry, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, portrayal of the Lord's Supper, and they're all just kind of, you know, having, you know, good time. I think it was really a sad time. I think the Lord's Supper was really a sad time initially when Jesus said, one of you guys is going to betray me. Now, the reason I say that Judas is a good actor is simply because nobody said, yeah, it's that Judas guy. <laughs> you know, he had fooled them for three years. Nobody said, oh, I think it's Judas. What did they say? Is it me? Is it me? These guys had real hearts. They didn't. weren't looking to pass the blame, pass the buck. They wanted to look inside, and they wanted to know, is it me? What about me? What? What? Maybe. Gosh, I don't know. I know my condition. I know what what kind of stuff lies within me. It could be me. Is it? And Jesus says, "What? It's the one who dips in the cup with, or dips in the, its bread with me." Uh, and eats with me. Now, what was significant about that? In Jewish times, you know, dinner was, eating together was more than a social event. It was something where they were bonded, where there was a sign of brotherhood, where there was a sign of camaraderie, where there was a sign of togetherness. We're in this together. So when Jesus says, it's one who dips in the bowl with me, he's saying, boy, that is betrayal of the utmost kind." Because when you dip in the bowl with me, what you're saying is, I'm with you. We're one. We're a brotherhood. We're united together. And one of you is going to do that, but man, you don't mean it at all. You're a hypocrite. You know, he doesn't say those words, but that's essentially what he says. So Judas, he's a good actor. You know, another one of them later on, you know, in a a day or two, is going to deny Jesus. He's going to say, I don't know that guy. Peter, Peter's going to say, I don't know that guy. OK, so you got to say, here's Judas and Peter, James and John. Sometime earlier, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. You know, might have even had their mom go up and, and plead their case for him. Uh, but, you know, they're bickering about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And I, I just think, you know, there's four right there out of the 12 that Jesus has to go. Ay, ay, ay. What are the what are, can I leave this whole thing to them? But Jesus does. He trusts them with what he's going to leave them. Now, Jesus still has communion with these guys that probably uh, have some baggage, you know, at best. One of them's a downright betrayer. The others have some baggage they don't see quite clearly. None of the disciples really see the plan of Jesus extremely clearly. And so Jesus still goes ahead and has the Lord's Supper, has communion with a lot like this. Now, what about us? You know, sometimes we look around, you know, or we might have to use our evaluative eye. We don't judge, do we? But we do evaluate every now and then. We evaluate people around us. Probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't. But we do evaluate people around us. And and we say, oh, gosh, I can't be with them, or I can't be with them, or I can't do this, or I can't do that. And I want you to know that when you take the Lord's Supper together, you're dipping... You're with each other. We become unified in the cause of Christ because it is Christ who lives in us. Now, Paul tells the, the people at, at Colossae, I think it is, he says that this great mystery of, of this thing in Christ is that Christ is in you and it's the hope of glory. It's the hope of glory. Now, the word hope means that it's going to happen and glory means that God's going to show up. Christ in you is where God's going to show up, you know, in your next week, you're going to have some times where people are going to need something from you, or they're going to need some encouragement, or they're going to need something. You might run across something like is happening uh, in the, in the South right now with all of the flooding. And you might say, boy, you know, something like that. I need to rally to that. I need to be used by that. I need to be the person through whom God shows up because he is in me. Now, Jesus has people, with, has people in his group like that. And he says, you know, we're all one. We're united in this thing. Now, we also look around maybe sometimes and see people have been hurtful to you or to your friends. And so we say, you know, I don't know that I want to dip my bread in the cup with those guys. You know, I don't know that I want to be united with them. But Jesus shows us by his example that he is connected to the people that are probably the worst friends in the world. You know, when you look at the actions that they perform. And so he shows us something. So here's some things that I want us to be able to practice. I want us to be able to participate with others, not only in communion, but in life. When we take communion together, what we're saying is that we are united. We are united in the cause of Christ. And no matter what you do, no matter how you live your life, no matter what shortcomings you might have, no matter what junk you have in your life, I'm with you as long as we are with Christ. I am with you. I'm not with you to, to advocate your sin or anything like that, but I'm with you to help you to walk with you so that we can walk with Christ. Number two, I want you to exercise forgiveness. Okay, when, it comes to, when it comes to communion, there's probably, this is probably the thing that disqualifies most people from taking communion properly. And that is that they lack forgiveness. Okay, Number one, I want you to experience the forgiveness of God. Okay, I want you to be forgiven. Be forgiven by God for all of the sin that you've committed. Number two, I want you to forgive the people around you that have sinned against you, that have hurt you. Jesus tells his disciples one time, he says, you know, when you come to the altar and you come to worship, when you come to pray and you find there as you're praying as you're worshiping that there's something that your brother has against you okay not you have against your brother but something your brother has against you he says i want you to leave your sacrifice there at the altar i want you to leave i want you to go make it right with your brother or sister and then come back and worship that's how important it is to be right with people okay so today when we take communion if there's somebody that you've got a problem with or somebody that has a problem with you, go and initiate the reconciliation process so that there can be forgiveness that's given in that situation. Then the last thing I want you to do is I want you to learn to trust. Okay, learn to trust. You know, trust is a hard commodity, huh? Because trust is based on what? Trustworthiness. Okay. Now, Jesus, could he trust his disciples? You got to give a hands up or a hands down, okay? How many say you could trust his disciples? Okay, how many say you couldn't trust his disciples? Okay, (laughs) we've mixed the house again. Okay, I want you to learn to trust the sovereignty of God. Okay, number one, trust the sovereignty of God. And that is when things look like they're going haywire, when the things look like they're not quite going what I expected them to look like, I want you to trust the sovereignty of God. When things go wrong for you, Maybe that's God's way of redirecting you. Maybe that's God's way of connecting you with someone else. Maybe that's God's way of showing you that there's another way. But make sure that you trust the sovereignty of God. Okay? And that is that I've done everything I can do to make things right, and now I just trust the sovereignty of God to take care of stuff. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed and asked God uh, you know, to reconcile things in my life. And I say, God, put that person in my path. So that i can initiate reconciliation and it's amazing how often that happens just let me have eyes to see that person and when i see that person i'm going to remember what you did with the guy with the water jug send your disciples to find the guy with the water jug follow him okay they've got their eyes open for a water jug don't they when we pray and ask god to put people in our path for reconciliation we'll have our eyes open to see them be in our path Be specific in your prayers in those regards. And so therefore, learn to trust God's sovereignty. What do we want to do? We want to accomplish God's will right now, right now. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes God doesn't provide the avenue for that to happen. And he's waiting for stuff. I don't even know what he's waiting for, but he's waiting for stuff to align for him to get the bigger purpose beyond my personal things in order. And so he wants the bigger picture to be fulfilled as well. Learn to trust God's sovereignty. When you learn to trust God's sovereignty, you know what goes away? Worry. Worry goes away when you trust God's sovereignty. You know what happens when you don't trust God's sovereignty? You worry. You worry. Now, I know that I've asked you before, and I know that we have some world-class worriers here. And I'm not saying that you're not a spiritual person, okay? I'm not saying that. But I am saying that I want you to really hone your trust in God's sovereignty. Do what he tells you to do. Don't delay in doing what he tells you to do. But sometimes the avenue's not there, and so therefore you have to say, okay, God, whenever you see fit for this to happen, I'm, I'm ready. Herbert Jackson was a new missionary out on the field, and as a new missionary, he was given a car that had been used by the previous missionary that was in the field there. And uh, the problem with the car was that it wouldn't start. So he was given a car that wouldn't start. And he's a pretty ingenious guy. So what he does is he goes down to the local school and gets permission from the schoolmaster for the kids to get out of school uh, for just a brief period of time to push his car so they can pop the clutch and start it. You know? ingenious guy. So he does that. And as he goes about his business every day, he either parks on a hill or he leaves the engine running, does his stuff, does his missionary stuff, comes back at night. And then the next morning he gets the kids, they push his car, boom, starts it up. And he does the same thing day after day after day. After two years, uh, his family became sick. And so therefore he had to leave the field. And just as he's getting ready to leave, the new missionary comes on and he tells the missionary uh, and uh, the new missionary comes in and says, hey, Dr. Jackson, you know, I, kind of fill me in on what's going on here. He says, oh, the good thing is, is that you have uh, a, a good ministry arena. The bad news is, is that you have to drive to get there. And the worst news is, is that the car doesn't start. I've had it for two years and it's never started. And so here's what I do. I go and I get the kids uh, from the school and they push the car and then I keep it running, park on a hill, do whatever. And the guy pops the hood up and he goes, oh, look, this battery cable here. And he jiggles it a little bit, gets in the car and starts it. Now, he had been going for two years. Why? Two years pushing his car, parking on a hill and leaving it running. Why did he do that? Because he didn't expect the car to start. How many times have we not been plugged into the power of God because we didn't expect God to do something? So today, what I want us to do is have a change of heart have a change of attitude, have a change of action.